Everybody knows that a free enterprise economy has to provide regulation. After all, business interests don't always serve what economists call the public good. So that means that influencing government policymakers and regulatory agencies is a business all in itself. But despite what we hear about the swamp on K Street in Washington, lobbying is only part of the story. Hello again, I'm Aaron Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Professor Henry Friedman teaches accounting. He is a widely published authority on corporate governance, on regulation and corporate responsibility, and he also includes lobbying in his sphere of interest. Professor, welcome. Great to have you. Thanks very much. Really happy to be here. Happy to talk with you. You're interested in, in how the influence business is structured and how companies decide whether to hire lobbyists and whether they get what they pay for. Tell us how it works. Yeah, sure. There, there's a couple dimensions of that. So uh, my interests are both in how firms decide whether to, to hire lobbyists, how they decide to try and influence the regulation that applies to them, but also how governments can structure the regulatory framework in a way that maybe either limits or, or encourages that sort of lobbying or policy influence activity. So a couple really interesting areas are both how firms decide how to influence the regulations that apply to them, whether that's through hiring external lobbyists, doing their own lobbying activities, meeting with regulators, things like that. So that's quite interesting. Another area that I'm interested in as well is how can we structure the, the regulatory framework, how enforcement agencies are organized in a way that maybe limits the influence that firms can have on the regulations that they face? How did you, as an accounting professor, get involved and interested in this? Certainly, the way that accounting rules are set is, is a setting where you've got a lot of different parties trying to influence the way that the rules are crafted. You've got the Financial Accounting Standards Board trying to figure out what are the best rules in terms of trying to get investors to have as much information as possible, but not imposing too much of a burden on the firms that have to produce financial reports. So as an accounting professor, I'd say my interest started really in thinking about how do the various parties like preparers or firms, investors, and others, how do their interests or preferences get reflected in the accounting standards making process. And once my co-author and I started going down that route, we really got into uh, a much broader literature on how our policies, how our regulatory policies or enforcement policies chosen by society. A lot of research assumes that the regulator is trying to maximize the utility or the, the happiness in the economy, make everyone as well off as possible. There's another stream of research that gets into these lobbying activities, thinking about the regulator as a more party or group of people who's trying to make decisions in a way that any of us would make decisions, where we've got incentives and there's potentially conflicts of interest and we're subject to influence from various parties. Maybe we don't have complete information. So I just think that there's both the really interesting link to how accounting rules are set, which is important as someone who teaches accounting and has to explain why do the accounting standards look this way to first-year MBA students when it's not always super intuitive. So it, it helps me think about that. But then in general, just thinking about how are regulations set as an applied economist 
how are rules set? How are regulators choosing how to balance the interests of various parties? Uh, so just trying to tackle a, a few things in, in my research related to that. And inevitably, you came to talk about lobbying. Did you have any preconceptions about lobbying one way or the other before you began? Personally, my views are, are influenced by how lobbying is covered in the popular press. One thing that you get into as you start doing more research on this, certainly there's a lot of dimensions of lobbying. The other thing that's important to take away, the regulators don't actually know everything. So a lot of times they have to rely on expertise from regulated industries or affiliated parties when they're trying to figure out what are the rules that make the most sense. So you talked earlier about the art versus the science. Science absolutely plays a role. And it's hard to avoid the fact that often the people who know the most about how something works are people who are intimately involved in a business in that field. So there's a lot of lobbying that's bad and that should be viewed as pejorative because it's trying to, say, get a bigger slice of the pie for me. The classical example is I work in some kind of industry. I want my industry to get a subsidy and everyone else to be taxed to pay for that. That's clearly bad. That's, that's a negative facet of lobbying. But the other side of it is help regulators figure out what the right thing to do is. That's just another facet of it that maybe doesn't get appreciated as much. So it's, it's not as cut and dry. The ability for experts to help regulators figure out what the right thing to do is shouldn't be discounted too much. How do they decide and, and what factors do they need to take into consideration uh, when they're either going to do it themselves or hire somebody from the outside? Just like any other economic decision, it makes sense to think of this as a cost-benefit analysis. If it's the type of activity that a firm's going to be engaged in time and time again, then odds are they're going to have their own in-house people who are doing it. It becomes effectively a fixed cost for them. Above and beyond this, there are times when Congress or certain enforcement agencies are focusing on either writing new rules or figuring out how to enforce existing ones or ones that just got passed on the books. That's a time when firms would be employing additional help, additional lobbyists, maybe working together even, even more strongly in lobbying coalitions, taking advantage of trade groups like the American Bankers Association, when they would be even more involved in, in policy influence activities or, or what you might call lobbying. So to sum it up, it's what is the benefit I get out of this versus what does it cost? Uh, of course, in a lobbying framework, the benefit isn't just what do I get out of this specific piece of influence activity, but also how can a firm or the people it's employing maintain relationships with policymakers, regulators, enforcement agencies so that they can improve their operating environment over you know, multiple periods into the future. An interesting thing that's come out of, of some empirical research in this area is it does seem like the returns to lobbying. So if you do something like regress stock price performance on how many dollars are spent on lobbying, you get a, a pretty high number. So what you'd expect to see from a traditional economic framework is your last dollar spent gives you about a dollar of benefit. So the marginal benefit equates to the marginal cost. It seems like firms are getting outsized benefits from their, their lobbying dollars spent which is a bit of a puzzle, because if you thought that was the case, then you'd expect them to be spending even more on lobbying. But maybe there's some other constraints, some other limits to how much of a benefit they can get from lobbying, so that you don't necessarily have this classical marginal cost equals marginal benefit rule playing out. Uh, you said there at the outset that sometimes regulatory agencies and sometimes the Congress are getting ready to uh, take action. How does a business know that? How do you find out 
that your business is about to be regulated and that uh, maybe it's time to uh, get the lobbying effort in, in gear? I think in a lot of these cases, it's public information. So certainly after the financial crisis, both houses of Congress were working on writing Dodd-Frank. That's a time when the American Bankers Association, various banking lobbies, various banking coalitions, other interested parties representing non-bank financial institutions like real estate or insurance companies, it was easy to see that this was a focus area for Congress just based on reading the Wall Street Journal any given morning, uh, listening to President Obama's speeches around the time. It's hard to hide, at least in the U.S., what are the focal areas in Congress because Congress people make those things known pretty widely. What you see if you look at the data from lobbying and expenditure reports that firms and, and lobbyists are required to file, you really see a ramp up in spending around these times. And you see a ramp up in spending on focal issues because this is a time when firms and other interested parties can really have the most influence on the rules that are going to apply to them as they're being written effectively. Outside of Congress, you also have the whole alphabet soup of enforcement agencies. And of course, firms undertake a lot of efforts. Maybe it's not traditional lobbying where they have someone meeting with Congress people, but they'll have meetings with regulators, meetings with enforcement agencies, like certain committees on the Federal Reserve, or certainly if they're trying to get approval for things from the EPA, there would be meetings or other influence activities undertaken uh, that might fall outside of the scope of traditional lobbying. But anytime there's an important decision that's going to affect what a firm is able to do, the economic benefits that a firm can get from that, that's a time when you should expect firms to be engaged in these influence activities, whether they involve a traditional lobbyist from K Street or whether they involve the executives or public relations or investor relations getting in contact with the relevant regulators. So it's outside the scope of traditional lobbying, but it's still influencing. Oh, absolutely. A lot of the influence activities firms undertake is with the enforcement agencies. Obviously, there's a lot of work that's done to try and change how laws are written, but there's also work that's done to influence how enforcement activities are undertaken. So certainly with like SEC investigations, there's communication between firms and the SEC that happens before the enforcement actions become, become public. And a lot of initial investigations don't become public ever because the SEC and the firm under question are able to resolve that issue before it needs to be become an official enforcement action. You've argued, as I understand it, that it is a good thing if regulation can be uniform rather than not, even though that creates what you refer to as free riders. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, actually, the free riding is the mechanism that allows it to provide a benefit. And really, it's because having more one size fits all or more uniform regulation causes firms to free ride on each other's lobbying or influence activities. So because they, they free ride on each other, everyone does a bit less. So the regulator is less influenced by what firms want and is able to set rules and regulations that are more in society's interest as opposed to benefiting firms at the expense of, of society. It's specific to a setting where you've got firms seeking, seeking regulation that is privately beneficial to them, but socially harmful. So something like lax environmental standards. So what's an example of a situation where a regulatory agency took the broader perspective and regulated everybody in the same way uh, so that uh, there might have been free riders, but uh, that overall you had a healthier situation. 
Yeah, I, I think this is something that we're seeing a bit more in the accounting setting. Uh, so I'm an accounting professor. One of the reasons I'm interested in lobbying and, and influence activities is because I'm interested in how the accounting rules are set. A lot of people think they're they're very cut and dry and and just clear rules, but really there's a lot of differences in how they can be applied in any given firm's uh, situation, and those situations can change over time. So there's there's a lot of discretion, there's a lot of variation. One thing that the U.S. Accounting Regulator, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, as well as the International Accounting Standards Board, IASB, they've both been pushing to a large degree towards more principles-based accounting standards where they say, here's the general principle that that you should apply. It's the same principle for everyone, which might be considered a more uniform way of thinking about the accounting standards. So now when, when say, GE tries to influence the FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, to change how they can account for things like long-term care liabilities, maybe it's going to be a little bit harder to change that because they would have to change the principle that, that applies to accounting for long-term liabilities. And that would be harder than, say, changing a specific rule for how to account for insurance liabilities related to long-term care in a given situation when the insurance regulator in your state says you have to do X, Y, Z. And that's an area just where the push towards more uniformity and how firms should, in general, apply accounting standards might lead to standards that's a little bit better than having, here's a rule for companies that are doing things one way, and here's another accounting rule for companies that are doing things another way. And, and just to tie this back, the information that firms provide is another example of something like a public good. So once it's out there, it can potentially benefit everyone. It's non-exclusive. It's obviously costly for some firms to provide, but it's it's something that provides a benefit above and beyond the benefit that it provides to those firms only. When there is uniformity, does that mean there's less work for accountants? Uh, no, not necessarily. So I, I think most frequently they describe how firms have to calculate a specific number and the minimum that has to be disclosed. And certainly there's no shortage of opportunities for firms and managers to provide more information. Above and beyond that, maybe this is veering a little bit, but this issue of principles-based rules, that requires a little bit more judgment in terms of figuring out if a, if a firm and how it's applying a given accounting standard is applying the principle appropriately. So actually moving towards a more uniform principle-based set of standards, making sure that companies are applying principles appropriately requires judgment, and judgment takes, takes time. It takes thought. Uh, so it's not just ticking the boxes, which is something that could potentially be replaced or automated much, much more easily. Your accounting students will be happy to hear that. And I'm sure other accountants as well who are listening to this uh, program. So when is the public good best served? If you have uniformity, uh, are you likely to have stronger regulations or less strong regulations that might not be as good for the public? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. So I think a lot of that comes down to what is it that the regulator is trying to do? Whoever's writing regulations, if you assume that they're trying to do things that are in the best interests of society, then having that uniformity can reduce the incentives for firms to exert these lobbying efforts that push the policy away from what, what's best for society. I don't want to omit the fact that there's a reason that regulations are not just one size fits all. There is substantial heterogeneity between firms. Firms are different. Industries are different. 
for instance, the environmental or the emission standards that apply to coal firms are obviously different from the emission standards that apply to supermarkets. They're very different. They, they have to have uh, different regulations. So there's got to be some heterogeneity in there. So striking the balance, it's not an issue of should you go 100% to uniform rules or 100% towards having total heterogeneity, having totally targeted regulations at, at each firm in each different situation that they might find themselves in. It, it really is a balancing act. And unfortunately, I, I don't have much to say beyond that, just that the role of academic applied economists is often to point out how various economic forces, how various frictions might influence the quality of decisions that are made by, say, regulators. What about the uh, political environment? It certainly impacts uh, regulation and uh, the attitude toward regulation from, uh, you know, Reagan to Clinton and uh, Bush to Obama to Trump. And obviously that uh, can make a big difference. Is there a trend, would you say, one way or the other? Are we moving toward more or less uniformity? I don't think there's been a general trend over the last however many years. I think you have some settings where there are pushes towards uniformity, like, like in accounting over the past 20 years or so, with the shift by at least some towards more principles-based accounting standards. On the banking side, you also might have seen a shift towards a bit more uniformity. In the wake of Dodd-Frank, one of the regulators, I believe it was the Office of Thrift Supervision, was eliminated and their responsibilities got rolled into the Federal Reserve and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. So you had a reduction in the number of regulators, so a reduction in the number of different rules that could apply depending on who your regulator is. But there's lots of other areas where we're plausibly moving or not seeing a shift in heterogeneity. Certainly nowadays, it seems like there's general push towards having more of the regulation done by the states, which certainly pushes towards more potential heterogeneity, as opposed to having as many rules at the federal level. So I think in the broadest sense in the US, the last several years have seen a weaker desire for federal rules, which has sort of opened up room for heterogeneity based on state level rules. But really, there's there's an ebb and flow depending on which specific environment you're talking about. It's hard to, to talk more generally about that. And even not to get too political, but this federal versus state heterogeneity, there's one way to couch that as like a state's rights issue. The states should have the right to choose the policies that affect their citizens and their businesses. And I think that used to be a fairly conservative idea, something that was held closely by conservatives. And nowadays with the federal government choosing not to regulate things Maybe this is in reaction to the federal government trying to prohibit states from enacting regulations like California environmental regulations. You've seen really more of a push towards state and even municipal rights or freedom to do things the way that states and municipalities want to do them, as opposed to having dictated from the federal government. And that's become embraced much more by, by the left wing or, or the Democrats. When a company is deciding whether or not uh, to lobby itself or to hire another lobbyist or to uh, influence regulatory agencies in one way or another. Does the company have a responsibility to the public good? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. I think the, the pervasive philosophy is that a company, and certainly the managers and the directors of the company, have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. So they absolutely should not be violating any laws, but they should be pursuing policies that are in the benefit of their shareholders. And now that can mean a lot of things. 
could be in the benefit of their shareholders long-term. It could be in the benefit of their shareholders in the short-term. The long-term versus short-term, you see that playing out potentially with some oil firms uh, focusing more on oil and gas and some extractive industries focusing more on trying to pivot towards renewables. So maybe the pivot towards renewables is in the benefit of, of long-term shareholders. But you, you asked specifically about how they choose to lobby and is that, is that a good thing? It's tricky because I think it's in some ways the responsibility of managers and the directors on boards who oversee them to try and do things that are in the best interest of the firm. They don't have a fiduciary duty in the same sense to society at large. So what constrains them is, is the rules and regulations that they have to abide by. In this context, are there responsibilities that uh, are those of accountants? It's a great segue to a really important issue, which is transparency. It may not be accountants per se, in terms of the numbers that go into financial statements, but certainly accountants in the sense of preparers of information that firms release publicly. Around the world, there's a lot of focus on the information that firms are putting out related to sustainability, environmental, social performance, governance comes in there as well, but certainly environmental and social performance have been getting rightly a lot of attention recently. Now, what's the role of transparency in in this framework? Well, really, it helps provide information to regulators, to public interest groups who might apply some sort of pressure, maybe to customers who have some say over where they get their electricity from, maybe to employees who say, I am less willing to work for a company that's doing things that are bad for society. So the the transparency really facilitates these other levers of influence that might push a company that has a lot of negative externalities, that is doing things that have a negative impact on society where they don't bear the cost directly through traditional mechanisms. Transparency can really help provide mechanisms that force those companies to internalize the effects that they have on society more broadly. And are we as a society, politically speaking, as we go from one administration to the next, moving in one direction or another? Are we moving toward a greater transparency? Are we moving toward greater uniformity? Uh, or is it just too complex a situation to uh, uh, try to make an assessment like that? So on the uniformity front, I think this is very context specific. So there are some settings like financial accounting with the move to principles-based standards where maybe that's a push towards uniformity. In banking regulation, you've got a push towards uniformity after Dodd-Frank when one of the three main banking regulators, the Office of Thrift Supervision was shut down and their responsibilities got absorbed. In other settings, maybe thinking more broadly about the US political environment, we might be moving towards less uniformity because at least under the the current administration, there's a weaker taste for setting stringent rules, which leaves more room for states and cities and counties to set their own rules, to set their own standards. So on that front, it seems like we might be moving towards less uniformity. On the transparency front, certainly as an accounting professor, I think about the SEC And the Financial Accounting Standards Board playing a big role in in encouraging and forcing firms and investors to a large degree to to be transparent about what they're doing, what their holdings are. So any large company that has a reasonable, let's say, retail-facing operation, anything where customers are potentially going to be concerned, but even a lot of other companies are regularly publishing more information about their environmental and social effects. Now, what we don't have right now is a lot of standardization. 
So just to connect it back, we have a world where firms in large part have discretion over what they choose to say about their environmental and social performance. There, there are private bodies that have published standards, but there isn't an SEC mandate, for instance, on what information firms have to provide and how they calculate it. And I think there's a lot of interesting issues along those dimensions, because if firms are calculating things different ways, then A, they they have discretion over how they calculate things, and it becomes harder to compare across companies. So if one firm says, uh, we're being really good to our employees, and another firm says the same thing, maybe those two things mean exactly the same thing. Maybe they mean things that are wildly different because they're not based on standardized measures. So if I asked, are we moving toward or away from the public good, uh, you'd have to say uh, you have a mixed answer. I think we're moving towards the public good, at least in my personal view. And, And everyone has their own view of what the public good is. But I think because of private incentives and private demand for greater transparency, I think we are moving towards having greater transparency that facilitates the public good. Henry Friedman, again, professor of accounting at UCLA Anderson. Thanks so much for being on our program. Thank you very much. Really appreciated uh, talking with you. I'm Warren Alney. This has been How the World Works from the UCLA Anderson School. Thanks very much for listening. Join us again.